Hello listeners and welcome to CMI's Peace Talks. In this show we look at the world through the lenses of peacemaking. We have conversations with both our own and other top experts on what it takes to build lasting peace in this unstable world situation. In the wise words of our founder, Nobel Peace Laureate Marti Ahtisaari, we believe that all conflicts can be resolved. This podcast is about how to do it. Welcome to CMI Peace Talks. I'm Elina Lehtinen, CMI's Communications Director, and I will be hosting this podcast. In this podcast, I will be discussing very interesting but complex issues of current global politics with CMI's Program Director Iton de Kakoma, who has a more than a decade-long hands-on experience in global affairs, conflict resolution, U.S. foreign policy, and Africa. Please welcome Itzonde Kakoma. Thank you for the welcome, Elena. Uh, now we are coming to an end of the year 2019. I would claim that it has been a stormy year in Europe, in the U.S., and also around the world. Foundations of the current world order are trembling. Some are saying that the system is broken. The multilateral liberal world order is being challenged by authorian regimes, anti-liberal fundamentalists. During the past 20 years, at least 30 democracies have broken down and efforts to build new ones have failed. It's under what has gone wrong? Mm. Gosh, uh, many things, uh, but also many things have gone right. Uh, President, former President Obama and other notable analysts have mentioned this fact, if you will, of world history. Namely that if you were to choose any time in world history and you didn't know your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your religion, nationality, what period would you choose? Any time in history. And they've all said it would be now despite the challenges which you cite, which are true. But on the whole, in the grand narrative of history, collectively, we as a human civilization are much more advanced towards a more equitable world. Having said that, and all things being equal and relative, there are serious challenges. There are serious threats to a more peaceable world as envisioned by the United Nations next year or the establishing or the anniversary of 75 years since its establishment. That vision towards a more peaceable world to prevent conflicts that the modern world has witnessed for most of uh, the last couple of centuries. And, and here I would come back to a quote from the last General Assembly Uh, this 2019, where current Secretary General Gutierrez stated that he fears the possibility of a great fracture, the world splitting in two, with the two largest economies on earth creating two separate and competing worlds, each with their own dominant 
currency, trade and financial rules, their own internet and artificial intelligence capacities, and their own zero-sum geopolitical and military strategies. Before the UN General Assembly... That's a serious comment. It's a serious comment, and he, in the end, he manages to summarize in a simple, clear paragraph the dilemma of your initial question. Why the faltering? And why not? And, and also, arguably, why the progress? And what he's stating very plainly, plainly is not just a return to the fracturing along Cold War lines, but an even deeper fracturing yet to be determined. And he specifies some, ultimately saying something will shift. A question then being, what is the role of the United Nations and other historic multilateral institutions in accompanying, steering, guiding, preventing shifts that would fracture in a harmful way and limit or, in fact, infringe upon the progress that has been made uh, over these past 30 years? But if you if you take the organizations and multilateral institutions away, and if you think about just the, the politics, um, have the leaders really been leaders, uh, like the, the the people of the, of their what they're governing are expecting, or um, what other trends are there beneath this broken system? People are unhappy. Not everybody is winning in this globalized world. No, uh, that's clear. Not everyone is winning. And, and that gets to a fundamental issue around why there is so much demand now for change. And you see it in peculiar ways. There is clearly a rise in nationalistic sentiments across the West. Calling upon some purified vision of what the state should and should not be. And this, of course, is playing upon the fears of those who have been left behind or those who think that they should be, because of their own historical circumstances, in a more privileged position than they find themselves currently. And what's clear to me is that fear tactics are not an answer at all. They will play upon, for a moment, uh, the sentiments of a group, try to bring about some form of collective identity, but ultimately are not addressing root causes. Which gets back to some of the bigger questions that the Secretary General was pointing to and some of the challenges you identified. And, and here, really, yes, you're right. The multilateral systems are only as good as former President Althazari always states, as their member states allow them to be. And if we're at a moment where member states at the domestic level, not across the board, but generally I think it's fair to say, are struggling in preserving those gains of democracy, preserving those gains in human rights, preserving the gains in economic development, then it means the multilateral systems that they are a part of will equally fracture or or have difficulty in, in, in functioning. What's the alternative? 
it's not just about leadership. And yet it is. Why is it not just about leadership? Because it's about institutions and systems that go beyond the leader of the day, so to speak. So I would hope that we've gotten beyond that, that we could say our systems are in place. We're in Finland. We'd like to think that the systems work regardless of the leader of the day and that they will work not just for the current generation but for future generations regardless of the leader in office. That's a profound vision of what governance looks like. I don't think we're fully there yet and it's being tested in places profoundly like in the United States where the reliance upon stable institutions regardless of the political stripe has really been at the center of exerting American influence globally. If that's being questioned by the current administration, it also questions or those questions start to arise from other places beyond the United States. Can you rely on these systems, meaning policy? And and here is, that's a fundamental aspect of, of international relations, global trade, reliability, sustainability beyond political winds and stripes. And that seems to be shaking up significantly. Um, what that means, the future will show us. But but isn't it also, it's a question of leaders and institutions, definitely, but about values. Mostly. Yes. Everything is based on the values. And if we are now questioning the liberal values, that us, us Westerners are thinking that they were the basic values, are there? There are many countries in today's world that are questioning, are these the values that we want to base our societies? So um, I'm just <coughs> asking you the question of, are the liberal values, are they still valid? And where? Look, the, the principles of equality before the law, transparency in terms of government decision-making, fairness in society with respect to access to basic things like healthcare and education. These are central values that I don't think are unique to the West or some nomenclature like liberal. These are basic values. And insofar as those societies that have put these at the forefront, so far as they're not able to maintain those, to realize those values as as the lived experience of their citizens in a way that is not exclusive to those who may want to seek also sanctuary or residence mm-hmm. or whatever it may be there. That, that really cuts through, I think, what you're talking about. Much of the questioning that we hear about the imposition of a supposed Western values on other societies, it's precisely because of the contradiction that we see in various Western states in not adhering 
to the very values that are purported to be Western. And that's where it becomes unconvincing. It's convincing when there is a demonstration of how those articulated values impact the lives of the basic individuals living in those societies and how they are treated equitably, fairly, justly before law and with respect to participating in the benefits of, of society. And I know it's not an easy issue and it's a hot button issue in particular for many European countries who, quote-unquote, is worthy to <laughs> benefit uh, from the systems of, of governance. And it's not so clear. And I, think I think that's one of the core problems because many people in the, in the West, in, in Europe, and in the United States definitely are questioning, have these global so-called liberal values, have they brought us some peace and prosperity? And we have to say, not necessarily, not to all of us. No, and, and you know, this is the, I think the, the, the power of the American story is, is it's in a sense, it's contradiction. Uh, the United States has inspired Western and non-Western societies alike to think anew about inalienable rights, uh, the, the pursuit not simply of happiness, but of of equality before the law at any cost. Mm -hmm. The civil rights struggle, people forget, was not merely a domestic struggle. It was, and many people lost their lives, but it was a global struggle that inspired countless of others to not only support, but also carry their own burden in their respective societies. And that's interesting to me, and we, we, we I think, in the West, we sometimes forget that. We forget how profoundly domestic situations um, have be direct bearing on the credibility of Western states abroad in handling and managing international affairs, in upholding systems of multilateral governance. Um, it's a credibility issue in the end. It's only 30 years ago when the Berlin Wall came down. And during this uh, 30 years period, actually, there hasn't been major wars fought um, like be between state to state mm. uh, around the world. Definitely there are more conflicts uh, than ever right now in the past five years, but not really like a big major wars. Mm. Uh, and we all know that the United States has been the leading power of the world after um, after the kind of the uh, Cold War era was was over. And uh, now its role has been challenged. And one would claim that there's it's declining, and there are also others seeking more power in that arena. So I'm I'm asking you, do you as an American, how do you see the U.S. role being challenged? And is it coming internal, from internal, internally or externally, or both? Well, it is the question of the day in the United States. And I think for the first time in my kind of adult memory, if you will, 
or active participation in public life and political life, foreign policy is a domestic issue in U.S. elections again. That's interesting. There's a realization, I think, that the affairs of how Congress, the President, State Department, etc., how they conduct the affairs on behalf of the United States is now a question. And it's linked to a very fascinating account of one of the U.S.'s most esteemed diplomats, uh, Richard Holbrook's life, Our Man, that's titled by George Packer. And the subtitle of that book is The End of the American Century. Mm-hmm. And the whole premise of, of Packer's narrative uh, premised on the life of, the, the, of, of, of Richard Holbrook is that the singularity of power that the United States enjoyed mm-hmm. post-Cold War has now come to an end and starts raising fundamental questions about what does this mean? Who will fill that void? And it's not clear. And I'm not sure many American average citizens, so to speak, fully comprehends the significant significance of such a claim from a notable public intellectual like George Packer to speak of the end of the American century. And it is now, though, a conversation amongst many serious analysts and the recalibration of not just the United States, but of Europe and other other influential global actors is underway and totally unclear about what this means, both in terms of who will lead, who will not lead. Is there room for another leader? I've told you this before, Elena, but a couple years ago, Washington Post on the cover had this quote the leader of the free world visits the White House today. And they were referring to Angela Merkel. Mm. There was a sense that Europe, through Germany's rising influence and growing economy at the time, would carry the mantle, if you will. There's not that sense at the moment. So fundamentally, it's unclear. But what is true is that that space is increasingly being filled or new spaces being created by the likes of China, but also other regional centers of influence and power like India, um, Russia is claiming its own space, Turkey the same in its own sphere, Um, and then sub-regional actors filling their own space, if you will in the absence of a kind of global referee. And that's where you come back to the profound statement of the current UN General Secretary, or Secretary General, excuse me, stating his fear of a rupture. The end result, we have no idea. And, And here, 
um, I'm very fond of, of, of citing more oh, people who are, who are wiser than me. So here I come back to a recent op-ed of France's outgoing ambassador to, to the United Nations, where he, and I paraphrase, pointed to Europe and said, in light of all of these trends that you describe, will Europe simply be a kind of bystander, onlooker, subject of all these changes taking place, or will it define itself? Um, and he left it open. Mm. But he also hearkened back to recent history and said, this isn't new. Mm. We've seen in the past century periods when there has been a rise of nationalistic sentiments, an overt preference for sovereignty over and above cooperation. And we know through history that that doesn't lead to good scenarios. Um, and there, wise, sober leadership with foresight is required. I agree with you. And uh, I have a here a listing by the Brookings Institute um, saying that, you know, these reasons behind challenging the United States um, leading power in the world, at least it especially common interest to uh, China and Russia, that they listed three interests uh, and how it's um, how it's seen today in the world. Um, developing their own military and economic spheres of influence, definitely both. Question of the role of democratic institutions and norms around the world, yes, both. I think the third one is the most kind of, um, uh, I, I would say, interesting one and ha has, has many implications. And they both want to diminish Western dominance in the world order. What does does leave the institutions like CMI? We are trying to solve conflicts around the world, and all of these things happening simultaneously. So how do we solve conflicts? Gosh, that's a tough one, Elu. I, I would say, one, I personally do not want to live in a world without an effective United Nations. And that is not to say it's entirely effective but it is the embodiment of a collective aspiration that I ascribe to, namely for a more peaceable world. And is an institution that has layered instruments by which that more peaceable world can be realized. And why do I say this? The quote you share from the Brookings Institute points to competing world orders being established. Why I don't want to live in that world is because it means I would be living in an unpredictable world, a more unpredictable world. And that doesn't bode well for my future or the future of my generations to come. Unpredictability. Mm -hmm. And I think that is embedded in the, the observations 
from Brookings on what other rising powers or existing powers are attempting to do. They're painting the picture of another world order, one we have not yet, as far as we know, lived through, which means it's unpredictable with respect to the, the impact on not just our daily lives, but the way in which states interact. And I understand there why there would be such um, fear, frankly, uh, in that unpredictability. But at the same time, we cannot simply live like ostriches with our heads in the sand as if things aren't changing. Mm. They are before our eyes. And going beyond fear into, frankly, encounter and understanding and dialogue is precisely about what we do as an institution. To move beyond the perception of the unknown into hearing directly from various actors, independently, officially, on what the future may hold from their perspective. And this is a challenge because an independent institution like CMI, focused on peace mediation, can only do so much. We can create channels. We can, if stars align, even possibly build trust, if not agreement. But ultimately, our work is a part of a much bigger ecosystem of cooperation. And so we would see whatever we do in those unpredictable settings as a contribution to a much larger effort at bringing about some semblance of a peaceful vision for not just the current day, but for future generations. I would also like to kind of pop into another region completely, what you have a lot of experience from, which is Africa. Um, we know that most of the world's actually population, they live outside of the Western world. And uh, now when this global liberal democracies is kind of um, in, in crisis, uh, what kind of a model it is to the other parts of the world? And as we know that also in Africa, in the past few years, there's been some set setbacks in creating democracy. So um, how do you see the developments here? Well, first off, I would say that Africa as a whole is not separate from the conversation we were just having. While we emphasize the West and perhaps even some reference to China, all of what we just said applies to the African continent. And, and here's what's interesting. While, as you say, there have been some setbacks, there has also been considerable progress. And in some respect, multilateralism, in some respect, is alive and well on the African continent. The African Union is an institution uh, that has advanced in its convening authority, in its participation in global decision-making fora, in determining the foreign policy interventions and priorities of other states who would have historically done so unilaterally. And that's done through a collective leadership, 
Now, I don't want to inflate it by any means. There are still questions of the independence in the, of the institution vis-a-vis -vis the budget, but there are steps being taken in that direction. There are also questions of independence vis-a-vis -vis the very construction of the new headquarters, fully funded as a gift by, by China. But all that to say is that I have a clear sense that many African states are changing, if you will, the course of history and demanding an equal seat at the table. And I think options by way of other rising powers are providing that opportunity um, in a de facto sense. But this also relates to an earlier point. I mean, data has a peculiar way of changing in, in hindsight. So if in the 30 years you described, there was a, an assessment that there was a decrease in interstate, that is war between states had decreased, but an increase in intrastate conflict. New data is suggesting that it's not so clear that many of the, the, the ways in which intra, that is, within the states were being fought, or, or armed conflict happening within those states being fought, were in fact perhaps more than that. That there were broader regional, international proxy dynamics that doesn't allow for such a clear distinction between internal versus between other states, etc. And that's interesting because that throws data up in the air and raises the question about how peaceful has the last 30 years been, particularly in parts of the world like Africa or former Yugoslavia. Balkans, Balkans yeah. etc. Um. Yeah. Still in, in, in Africa, Africa is the kind of the trending word. It's, it's trending in Finland, it's in our governmental program, mm. also in Europe. Uh, why should we be paying so much attention to Africa strategies in Finland or in Europe? Well, absolutely you should. Um, the future history and the future reside on the continent of Africa, I would argue. Uh, the future because population growth, not only, but also uh, resources. But don't forget proximity. Mm. Europe shares much in common uh, with the African continent, not least of which being trade patterns. I mean, the Mediterranean itself, I think a wake-up call post intervention in Libya uh, and the crisis in Syria with the, the, the type of publicity surrounding migration over the last years. It's somehow come down a bit now, but you recall a few years ago, that was a wake-up call on the, how close Europe is to the African continent. So just along those lines, absolutely, Finland and other European states should take seriously the increased attention to the African continent. But of course, this is due as well to future prospects. It's not from a development standpoint, right? 
it's it's with respect to investment. Growing populations, uh, resources mean that there is there are prospects for private sector partnership. Um, there are prospects for an entirely new um, sector or population of individuals who will be online and active and interested in being educated and um, benefiting uh, from lessons in Finland and vice versa. So that's why it should be taken seriously, but as equal partners. And that's the shift, a major shift. And and here I, I must commend Finland for being very clear about that equal partnership language. Um, and hopefully that will reflect the way in which other uh, European states and, and other partners across the world engage with with the African continent more broad, broadly. Just um, still in the, in the very end, kind of a curious of um, understanding what what does the kind of the also the other big, I would say trends. I wouldn't like to use the word problems, but the big issues facing us today. How, how do they have an impact to the to the situation we are in right now so i'm talking about the the steadily warming planet and mm. the xenophobia bigotry rising refugee flows all of these things um how can we tackle these issues is the if the system is broken and we cannot discuss with each other it's a great question and i would say that it's important to do so not from the perspective of fear the way in which be very straight, the quote-unquote prioritization of Africa was put on the agenda in Europe was in large part from a perspective of fear, coupled by some of the issues that you raise. Okay, if there is a climate crisis, this will increase migrants, if you will. Um, so we have to tackle that rather than seeing it as an opportunity to advance technology and and mitigating measures as partners, as shared problems, um, that's missing. Increasingly so, I think, and again, I must commend Finland for re-articulating that vision and and prioritizing Africa and other 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 matters in a way that is far more constructive. Um, That would be my advice. To look at these kinds of issues you've raised squarely, not from the perspective of fear, but as shared opportunities uh, to advance a more peaceable world. There was a very positive note, Itonde. Thank you. And I would like to uh, note the words of uh, the founder of CMI, President uh, Marti Ahtisari, that he very firmly believes that what people have started, people can end. Do you agree with me? Thank you, Evelyn. Fully agree. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CMI's Peace Talks. If you like our show, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. You can also send us feedback and propose topics to discuss via social media. Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or by sending email to comms at cmi.fi.